welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you here for this special episode. Today we're doing something uh, new. This is something we haven't done. Uh, we have a number of really dedicated Patreon supporters, and we just uh, asked them, uh, you know, what would you like us to talk about? And we have a, a bunch of questions that are excellent, and we're not going to be able to answer them all, but we're going to uh, attempt to answer a few of them or respond to a few of them. I'm, I don't know if answer is the right, is the, is, is for some of them, the right thing to say or to, to, to <laughs> the way to class, classify what we'll be doing. But anyway, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest. And um, by the time this uh, the show comes out, it will be public information, but I am now a senior editor at Touchstone Magazine. And I'm very honored for that uh, uh, to have occurred in any way. Enough about me. Uh, Glenn, how about you? I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, a ministry associated at Reflections Ministries, and I wear a few other hats as well. All right, Tom. I'm Tom Price. I'm a theologian and Christian ethicist, teaching both. One of the places is Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. All right. Well, I don't know about you guys, but I was impressed by the depth uh, and the incisiveness of the questions. And, and, and frankly, I don't feel like I'm qualified to respond to some of them. <laughs> but anyway, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to get us, get us started here. And uh, this is from Jackson. And he singles me out, calls me out on this one. Okay. And uh, he says, uh, our nation's a natural pre-lapsarian institution uh, and then he cites Aquinas, who believed that to be the case. Or are they an unnatural post-Lapsarian institution? And then he cites Augustine. And as a follow-up, how does that impact your vision of culture and politics? Okay, wow. Well, uh, let me respond, uh, first of all, by noting that we're kind of dealing with counterfactuals here, you know. <laughs> uh, we have nations, and the world has fallen. <laughs> so, just at on, you know, at, at, at that level, we have to give points to Augustine. So now we're uh, asking, uh, you know, the you know, completely, uh, I guess, uh, you know, diff, you know, impossible thing to to to, to really. You know, answer conclusively: Would there have been nations if there had been no fall? I think that's the nature of the question. Now, um, it seems to me that uh, when we think about nations, uh, one of the things that determines whether or not something is a nation is, uh, or a body of people, group of people, is a nation, is if they have a shared history. And in order for you to have a, a history that's distinct from other histories. There needs to be some boundary, some barrier that allows that to, to come about. So if you're on one side of a mountain range and somebody else is on the other side, if you don't have a way of kind of uh, maintaining communication over time, languages are going to develop and become distinct uh, uh, and you're going to have harder time communicating, but you're also going to have history that helps to define you as a people. So in terms of you know, what would it take to prevent nations from developing uh, in an unfallen world? Well, it almost seems to me like you'd have to have an, a, you know, an environment in which there are no boundaries, um, and that's challenging. Yeah, Go Chris, ahead, Glenn. Actually, what you need is Babel. 
Well, but that's a lapsarian, uh, kind of post-lapsarian yeah, phenomenon. But, but the point is that at Babel, all, you know, God told us to reproduce, multiply, fill the earth. That's right. the one thing that they didn't want to do at Babel. They wanted to just all stay together. Um, right. And it's worth noting, by the way, I'm, I'm one who believes that nations would have arisen, um, largely because the word for nation... Um, is ethne, and it can mean what we today call a people group, what anthropologists would refer to as a people group. The concept of a nation is a relatively homogenous group, ethnically, linguistically, religiously, culturally, and so on. That's really the, the core of it. And historically, that's what kingdoms were. The thing that distinguished a kingdom from an empire is an empire was multi-ethnic, multicultural, and so on. So um, would, would ethne have developed? I think so. Uh, it's worth noting that prior to Babel, God gives the table of the nations. There are 70 nations that are listed there. That's before Babel. Now, it's post-Lapsarian, but it's after yeah. the flood and before Babel. I think that God loves diversity in unity and unity in diversity. So I think human cultures would have developed in a variety of different ways due to climate, due to geography, due to uh, natural resources available, all of these kinds of things, which would effectively have produced different nations in the original sense of the word. But even in, a, in, even in a fallen world, I believe that would have been the case, although there would still have been a kind of unity of people who would be worshiping God. Yeah, I think that considering Aquinas draws on uh, uh, Aristotle as, as much as he does, what we have with Aristotle is uh, a kind of ground-up approach to how communities develop. Uh, he starts with households, moves to villages, then to the polis, and then you know from there, there's a sense that with Aristotle, you have an optimal size, which means that you know, like any other kind of organism, there's going to be uh, a need to divide. Uh, otherwise, you're going to become just uh, unhealthy, you know, and unable to, to function in a healthy manner. And if we're thinking about, you know, a government, you know, even when you have, say, an empire, uh, you have uh, provinces, you've got you know, other, you know, sort of governing bodies that are subject to the, to the, to the, uh, the ruling authority at the top level, but you have a lot of delegation and distribution of authority throughout. So that to me is just another way of talking about, I guess, nations, um, and, yeah. you know, their place in the order of things. So, uh, just from the standpoint of human finitude, human nature, it seems to me that uh, nations are kind of baked into the into the plan from the start. And your point yeah, a minute th ago, uh, Glenn, I think is is one that's get worth keeping in mind. So even before Babel, you know, we yeah. had nations. Yeah, and I think uh, you know Aquinas' interest is the fact that law is is going to be natural. It's going to be part of baked in, if you will, to the different kinds of things there are. There's an intelligibility to each thing. And so human beings have an intelligibility that unfolds towards their, towards the kind of creatures they are and they're meant to be. And so one of the things is law precedes in a way or is ingredient within creation. 
Um, and so whether there was a fall or not, there would be a kind of order to things. And, and with intelligible creatures, I think Augustine's worry was, you know, you wouldn't have to have dominion over other. His was, worry was governance, right? The right. fact that, that if, we, if we would say that pri- there would be nations and governance prior to the fall, that that would mean in some way dominating others. But Aquinas's argument was very different. He was trying to say that wisdom would collect and be needed to to order and continue, um, and it would be it wouldn't be the same across the board. And this isn't this isn't a this isn't a fallen condition. This is a finite and creaturely condition. And I think someone who tried to balance, I think both out that take the Augustinian and Aquinas was Richard Hooker in his famous Laws of Ecclesiastical Hierarchy. I mean, he embraces both. Um, fully Augustinian anthropology, but completely appreciates what Aquinas was up to with, you know, prior to the, prior to the fall, that there would still be need for, for nations, governance and wisdom governing all that. Yeah. Well, good stuff. So that's, uh, that's question from, uh, Jackson. Do you have a, any, a question you want to respond to, uh, Glenn? It looks like you're getting a phone call there. <laughs> yeah, phone I mean, to respond to me <laughs> on my phone. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, um, I'm, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna just uh, follow one of my mottos, which is "Fools rush in where angels fear to tread," and I'm going to take a question from Jason. And this is and a question about eschatology, which is why this is the fools rush in kind so of question. So no matter what, we um, lose. And, <laughs> no matter how we respond, <laughs> right. we lose. Somebody is going to hold it against us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there are actually two parts in, in, in this question, and we'll take them one at a time. Uh, and I'll just read it verbatim up to the, the break point. The question that I keep hoping you will address is this. Is this the end? This could be taken in two directions that probably each deserve an episode. An eschatological one addressed not only from your theological points of view, but the historical points of view of various theologians. Let's stop there. Um, and then we'll get to the other, other half in a minute. Um, first of all, the way we view eschatology in evangelicalism particularly um, strikes me as being a little bit bizarre. You know, we analyze everything in terms of pre-millennial, two versions, historic and dispensational, amillennial, and post-millennial. My answer is, who dealt this deck? You mean those are the only choices we got? Um, And I'll add to that that I think that it is really strange to view your eschatology in terms of one verse in the most obscure book in the Bible. (laughs) It, it just doesn't make sense. Um, the distinction that's frequently made, particularly by post-millennials, is post-millennialism is the eschatology of hope. Because uh, it says, you know, all of the others, Amil, yeah, not necessarily, but they usually will lump Amil here, Amil and Premil, uh, both anticipate the church failing, the world getting worse, and all of that sort of thing. Post-mills, are positive. They, you know, they they think that the church is going to succeed, um, that uh, Christ's kingdom is going to spread across the world. Um, even if everybody doesn't come to Christ, Christian values and governance and things like that will be in place. And the support for that, I would say, is that nowhere in Scripture does it ever anticipate the church failing in its mission. Its weakness is understanding. I think the church's mission um, historically. 
if I mean, I think even A.A. Hodge said this. If you look at the historic position on eschatology, it goes both in both directions. You have the church succeeding in its mission and you have the world getting darker. So the light and dark and the light gets increasingly bright, the darkness gets increasingly dark. This is the way the church has historically for a millennium and well, more than a millennium and a half, that's how the church has tended to view things. Uh, our modern evangelical, distinctively evangelical categorization just doesn't really fit what you see in the broader history of the church. So it's a sort of a so wheat and, that would be my answer to the first. Yeah, part. so it's a sort of wheat and tares phenomenon, uh, both kind of right. uh, developing and growing to, alongside each other, and and kind of developing in a way that you know uh, become become ever more contrasted. Yeah, and and I think that. I mean, along with it, I think the the perception of what the you know the end game is has changed a lot um, for a long time, especially where the church was marginal and didn't didn't see much by way of of um, this worldly transformation. They definitely had a deeper hope about what union with Christ meant, and that there was something that was elevated beyond merely transformations of this world or. Or, or pictures of eternity strictly as just another um, form of this world, uh, just, you know, a lot better. Um, and so I think the imagination of the church, um, drawing on its rich biblical imagery, um, it, it always tends to either, you know, make it so esoteric that it's, it's has no continuity with things, or it is so much like basically sitting in our own living room, just in, you know, the best sort of kind of utopian circumstances. And um, I, I think, you know, you, you have these other elements that have to be there. I mean, one is this is a, this is a school of transformation for the saints. In other words, there is a readying us for an eternal life with God and a beatitude in God, yet there is also the new creation, and um, this is this is ultimately something I think we are the first fruits of. Right? Scripture talks about Christ building a temple; uh, He is the cornerstone upon which He is building something. So, so there you have to keep something to do with the first fruits and its succeeding um, because of Christ at the heart of our eschatological vision, as well as the beatific vision. Yeah, I think in terms of my own development, um, it's been a long time since I had a kind of premillennial disposition. Uh, I had to go back to my teen years when you know, the late great planet Earth was on everybody's <laughs> mind. <laughs> uh, so then uh, when it comes to the amillennial uh, understanding, uh, that has uh, increasingly struck me as being uh, ahistorical and uh, also in some sense uh, pessimistic uh, with regard to the influence of the church in history. Uh, the post-millennial outlook can go awry in a couple of ways. Uh, one is with a kind of uh, preterism that uh, eliminates the new creation. <laughs> this is basically <laughs> it. <laughs> and you're kind of like, well, man, that's a downer. Yeah, yeah, that's what it was <laughs> kind of a letdown. <laughs> or, or going the other direction where, where it's like, okay, uh, things are just going to get better and better and better. And like, uh, 
at some point in the future we are immortal you know <laughs> and mm-hmm. it, the, the, it's so you can have that kind of stuff uh kind of you kind of fall can fall into with with uh, with that outlook again the, the other things i think to consider are uh timeline um i'm rereading the old testament right now for the umpteenth time and i'm uh in ezra and you know here we have the exiles returning um it's a it's a pretty kind of um you know sort of significant thing to consider that even that from our perspective is ancient history so (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. so they're thinking of themselves as the remnant right and they're pretty depressed about the conditions that they find themselves in, and they and the fact that they still seem to haven't seemed to learn much. You know, they've mm-hmm. intermarried with the the people of the land and all this stuff. You know, and and here we are. You know, much further down the line, um, would I choose to go back to that period? Absolutely not. There really is something <laughs> that that the church has contributed to the world that's improved it. <laughs> You know, uh, and meaning the resurrection and the and the spread of the gospel and so forth. So uh, there is a leavening influence in the world, and that but that doesn't mean that there's there aren't uh, you know setbacks, very dark periods, yeah. lots of suffering and death. Uh, you know, the 20th century at one and the same moment, highest standard of living in the history of the world, more genocide than ever in the history of the world, same century, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, wheat and tares, speaking of that growing well, together. And, so, and, yeah. and, and interestingly, I mean, it, this is something we talk about a lot, but uh, I mean, think of the, the heightened atrocities were also somewhat the shadow downside of the heightened contributions of Christianity. Um, we've talked about how radically, and again, I don't have oppositional thinking between, for example, faith, reason, faith, philosophy, those things, because I under, my, my view of transcendence is such that there's no competition. And so when Christ comes along and t- says, bring everything into conformity to him, right, the renewing of the mind, when metaphysics changes and transcendence changes and the good changes and the beautiful changes and the church almost becomes the vehicle through which that transformation happens, it reaches so such a height that the twist that happens with nominalism and everything else reaches such a bad shadow. It produces a bad shadow. And the outflow of that is this notion of the human will unpremised and undetermined other than oneself as sovereign as that unleashes itself into the political domain and the social domain. So, so yeah, on the one hand, great things, great transformations on the, on the flip side, along comes with it, uh, very dangerous types of, you know, you could almost call them antichrist if you want, because they are the antithesis of Christianity, but they're like evil. It lives off of a good thing. Yeah. It's the the bastard children of the church. Yeah. You know, what we're dealing with. Yeah. Yeah. Any, any other, th- other thoughts on that, uh, Glenn? Oh, no. Um, I was going to uh, actually monopolize some more time and bring in half <laughs> of that question. Great. Go for it. Um, Yeah, let me pull this up again. Okay, the second half is, the other direction is for our country. We aren't the first civilization to be in the type of position we're in. You touched a little on this at the end of Order and Liberty. What lessons can we learn from history to best position ourselves as husbands, fathers, and grandfathers? How did people survive after the fall of their nation set themselves up to, um, and set set themselves up to thrive and are some of the same steps available to us? Um, and then they, they get, give some 
uh, examples here. Okay, so um, I think whatever your eschatology, I think it's pretty fair to say that we're in something of a cultural crisis right now. So the question is, um, making the assumption that Jesus isn't coming back tomorrow, what should we do? And actually, even if he is, what we should do probably remains the same. So um, what, what kinds of things are necessary for us to come through um, the kind of cultural crisis and quite possibly other kinds of crises that, that are facing us? Um, yeah. I would start with the idea that the place you really need to begin um, is living with complete faithfulness uh, where you are, uh, doing exactly what you're called to do, how you're called to do it, um, and to always be looking up, to, to always have hope. Um, because when you take a look at the early church where the Roman Empire was falling apart, the church was the thing that held, held stuff together. Um, it was a period of incredible turmoil on pretty much every level you can think of. But the Christians are the ones who preserve the best things from classical culture. They're the ones who, um, who promoted it, uh, who, who allowed it to survive. They're the ones who held things together. And if you go even earlier, if you go to the era of the Roman Empire, um, the Christians won. The right. small, unpopular minority religion <laughs> ended up winning because the people lived lives, as I put it, and why you think the way you do, they lived lives of extravagant faithfulness. Mm -hmm. So I would say that the place we need to begin is with that kind of extravagant faithfulness. Yeah. What comes to mind is that great book, uh, Canticle for Leibowitz. I don't know if you guys have had a chance to read that. <laughs> oh, yeah. But a marvelous work of science fiction, <laughs> which Im 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 sort of imagines a new... Uh, kind of fall uh, or, you know, the fall of, of the empire. And you've got a new monasticism, uh, which literally is copying technical documents that the people who are, the monks don't even understand, <laughs> you know, and they're trying to preserve this knowledge uh, from our civilization. But yeah, I think that, you know, right now we already see that. I mean, uh, the huge surge of interest in classical Christian education, uh, you know, in remarkably different places, um, you know, even charter schools, uh, people who have turned away from kind of the, you know, sort of the fads, the educational fads that we see in the academy, uh, whatever, um, you know, I, I'm encouraged by that. And, uh, I, I think that that's going to continue to prosper and, and grow. Uh, back to, the, to, to, you know, Jason's question, I think, you know, well, how to respond. I think we build our institutions. Um, when we think about how, why did the church prevail, well, it's because, and, you know, this is something that, you know, Alistair McIntyre brings out that Rod Dreher built his whole thing on, and that is uh, at some point people stopped investing themselves in the institutions of the empire because they just didn't believe in them any longer and they invested themselves in the new institutions uh and so we need to build those those institutions now the ones that that we believe can uh you know sort of sur survive the tsunami that's sweeping over our culture 
Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that, I think, you know, uh, on the one hand, some of the things that are consistent across the board are, you know, being faithful husbands and fathers and, you know, uh, wives and, and, and children, um, building strong families and investing in them and having them steeped in their commitments to the church and serving it because godly people serving the church is the best way to keep out the ungodly from getting a hold of it and running with it and ruining it. <laughs> and, and then from there, spreading out into the, 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 the kind of virtue that we embody and the crafts we do and the things we build, the things we invest in, the kind of goods and, and, and beauty we are focused on and build upon. Um, those things you cannot trade for anything, and they are part of the richer fabric of reality because they're grounded in God, and we have a desire for them. And so I think those, th- those things will not be crushed. They can be eclipsed. I think we can be witnesses to, to them. And I think that's really, that's a, that's a hopeful Christian vision that, that uh, we can. And, I, and like you said, I know people even here in New England, cold, rainy, cold-hearted New England, be- investing in beauty and institutions that, that are, are committed to this, this uh, Christian vision of, of God and God's riches. Yeah, it's also worth noting that um, after the Roman collapse, the, the church did an okay job in holding together administration, but a lot of other things fell apart. Um, administration was kind of shaky too, but they, they were the last men standing in that area. Where the revival actually occurred was in Ireland, a little territory outside the boundaries of the empire, considered properly a backwater by the Romans, um, and yet it was there for a whole variety of reasons that you see a new kind of strong, flourishing Christianity, focus on education, all these kinds of things. And they're the ones who bring a lot of that back to the continent. So while we need to yeah. be doing what we need to be doing, we should also, I suspect, be looking to the global south um, for right. um, a lot of the things that are going to determine the future of the church. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. If you stay even within the United States, it's it's the periphery where the you know sort of the the innovation occurs and where some of the most encouraging things that I'm aware of uh, are occurring. But you're right. I think 500 years from now, um, you know, who knows uh, what God has in store for us? But it seems as though He's preparing uh, those parts of the world that have that are not to shame those that are, uh, you know, we're in uh, a process of being disciplined right now and we're in the early phases of it in terms of Western civilization. God's handing us over to our lusts and our sins and that always ends badly. <laughs> for, for, so anyway, all right, well, let's go on to another question. Tom, do you have one that you like, that you, you yeah. like to respond to? Uh- um, number eight, Clinton. Uh, well, we, you won't know it's number eight, but it, from Clinton. <laughs> right. Thank you, Clinton. Um, there's a few parts to this. Um, one part is a little bit easier to answer. It says, hello, men of the podcast. Thank you so much for what you do. I've learned to love God deeper through it. 
In addition, you have taught me to read God's world with more omnivorous attention and wield his world with more sub-creative wisdom. So thank you. So the first question concerns the work of Mike Heisner and the recent popularity of Brian, I guess, Suave's Suave, yeah, Suave podcast. podcast. The Haunted yeah, I, I actually think that that podcast was inspired by our episode on the return of the old gods. Is is that right? So I I, yeah. I, I want to we'll we'll start with that point. Let me just ask get to the question, then we'll come back because I have not I've seen that podcast. I've not heard it yet, but I would like to. Um, said first, uh, have you all interacted with Heisner's work at all? Um, yes. <laughs> There's <laughs> an early answer episode. to that. Um, some episodes back. And then if so, do you think his vision of an enchanted cosmic dovetails with your emphasis on the magic of God and everything? So we could start with that point. Um, start yeah. start maybe with um, the, the haunted cosmos, because uh, maybe, uh, Chris, you'd like say something about that. I haven't had a chance to hear it, but I, it's Well, I mean, it's essentially, uh, the, this particular uh, uh, podcast that uh, Brian has developed uh, is you know dealing with the principalities and powers as real uh, entities, and and uh, the assumption is is that we can have in some sense ap- apprehension of them that we can know that we're you know what we're up against. It's not just yeah uh, you know uh, uh, you know so um, I guess uh, what's the word I'm looking for opaque that you can't know what's going on so there's that i but i'm with you it's not as though i've listened to much of it but yeah but i think the premise is something we're familiar with yeah and and so i think his question is i mean we we have uh done episodes on heisners they're worth they're they're little i think we did them quite early on so you may have to kind of skirt through some of the early episodes um but one of the things is um you know he's asking if it dovetails and then the other thing is um what itches this scratching that it is becoming so regular Christian teaching and then um, to follow it? Is it a faithful way pursuing a re-enchanted vision of reality? I mean, I think at the end of the day, um, I'm saying yes. I would say yes to all of these things, I think, because reality is richer than our imminent framed materialistic, reductionistic um, you know, culture. Um, and its limits, how they express it. And that that richness is breaking through in many directions. It's kicking through the scientism that is dominated. It's, con- it's, um, it's kicking through the kind of flat historicism or the flat kind of naturalistic histories of, of reading the scripture. And, and it's, it's really starting to say, recapture something of the early Christian understanding that you know, when we talk about enchanted or, or um, you know, mystical or, or the like, we're really just trying to say that th- there, there is no flat, reduced nature that is not in every aspect of its being grounded in God as its cause and oriented to God as its, its end. And therefore, it is, it is always more than what it is. It's always receiving from God, it's always sustained by God, and it's always directed to God. And again, the fall is a break in that, but there, it, that's where the tension lies. It needs God, but it puts something in the way, and there, there's a conflict. Another way of saying it is the world is sacramental. Um, and now there are richer and you know, kind of weaker versions of sacrament, and there are some that I think are problematic. But nevertheless, I think they're all after the fact that these elements, right, the bread and the wine, are, are, are more 
than just bread and wine, one way or another. And the way they participate in, in, in you know, relation to God and our relation to God is really what is starting to be captured by this. But secondly, that there is a spiritual domain, and that spiritual domain in Scripture is probably more substantive than the material and the and and the like. So so spirit is actually a richer substantial term. It has more density, if you will, than matter and and uh, uh, creaturely kind of embodied natures. This is why when you talk about the resurrection body, it is a physical resurrection, but it is a it's taking on immortality. Right there is a density much richer than just you know being something that can be born and die. And, uh, and so I think that there, I think there, there is a hunger for what the church really has, even if it hasn't perfectly been able to state it, has been trying to say over and over again, that this, this is God's world and it's rich and, uh, the spiritual is fundamental and forefront in it. Yeah, I would yeah, add yeah. that you don't have to buy everything that Heiser is doing in order to accept his core point uh, that that the spiritual world, the invisible world, as he calls it, which I think is actually a better word, the invisible world is real and it's potent and it's active here. That's the core point. Um, it, it, whether, whether you agree with him on the Nephilim and all of that sort of thing is you know that, that that's up to you but but i don't really think you can get around the way heiser is really helping people grasp that a biblical worldview is a fundamentally supernatural worldview uh brian sauve um is doing um and is uh co-host uh in haunted uh cosmos are actually what they're trying to do is saying, okay, we've got all these weird stories out there, you know, Bigfoot, Mothman, UFOs, whatever. If we try to evaluate these from a truly biblical perspective, which includes the reality of the invisible world, where do we land? That's fundamentally what they're doing, I think, with Haunted Cosmos. And I think it's a, a very worthwhile exercise. And to the third point, I think it's, you know, it's an itch that people are feeling not just in the church, but across the board. Um, my last years yeah. of teaching at Central, um, I was, you know, I was teaching, uh, I, I did a course on, um, uh, well, this one was on witchcraft in medieval and early modern Europe, magic and witchcraft. And when I taught the things like this a few years before, nobody took any of it even in the slightest bit seriously. And I was trying to sort of use this as a way of probing them to get them to start asking questions about worldview. By the time I finished teaching, I had students coming up to me after class and saying, yeah, I had somebody throw a spell on me. You know, it was a curse <laughs> on me. And I had to go to this woman who lived in our apartment complex uh, to get it lifted. You know, and this was a very matter-of-fact yeah, yeah. thing for them. So I think that the supernatural worldview is beginning to emerge more broadly culturally, and not surprisingly, then we're sort of trying to rediscover it within the church from a more biblical framework. Yeah, there are two thoughts that occur to me as we're as we're thinking about this phenomenon. One is, I think a loss of faith in scientism. Uh, there's a, uh, I think it, there's been a series of crises. Uh, over the last maybe 20 years or even longer that has uh, 
really undermined uh, the authority uh, uh, of science to address everything. In other words, there was this, like in the 80s and in the 70s when I was younger, there was a, there was a, a hubris that the scientistic people had that everybody was sort of intimidated by uh, mm-hmm. and just kind of, well, you know, how, how do we, it seems like they're going to be able to explain yeah, everything. The theory of everything. It, it, that was the phrase. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and now they're, we're like, they can't even like get eggs right. <laughs> you know, well they definitely the they definitely can't get vaccinated anyway i won't say <laughs> no but that's but that's exactly it i mean there are more and more people that are like i just you know it's just it's just too there's just too much circumstantial evidence and even smoking gun evidence to 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 help us or to lead us to believe that you guys are getting it all right all the time there's just a lot of things that we we have questions about the other part of it is um just kind of the experiential i mean when we looked at to say what was going on with COVID and with the lockdowns and that stuff, was it really feasible for us to explain it all the way as mass formation or mm. explain it all the way as just, um, you know, the, the government's ability to, uh, you know, message or, or get people to do stuff. Uh, when you have people that you thought you knew, uh, kind of turn on you overnight and yeah. you're like, what is this going on? Yeah. Uh, this is just, there's something, there's another dimension to this. Now there are a couple of things that concern me about the phenomenon. One is, is that there are, have always been, uh, even in, 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 a an enchanted cosmos, you know, that people dwelled in the past, uh, shysters and, and charlatans, yeah. you know, we have them in the new Testament for goodness sake. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> people are on the make, you know, and using, <laughs> Uh, you know, our fears of, of things that we can't see to, to exploit us uh, and to get power and stuff like that. So that's, that's a reality. Uh, another part of it is, uh, you know, your, your, your comment, Glenn, about using biblical categories, I think that's great. But at the same time, do we have all the categories in the Bible? Now, that, maybe that doesn't sound uh, uh, like uh, I want it to come across, but I guess what I'm getting at, so let's think about seraphim, for example. There's only one place in Scripture that they're referred to. It's Isaiah chapter 6. If it wasn't for that, we wouldn't yeah. have that category. Yeah. So do we have all the categories? Is, is everything named? Are there things out there that we don't have names for? Right. I've, I've, I've argued that the invisible world is probably every bit as complex and probably even more complex than the visible. And we've got everything from yeah. viruses and microbes all the way up to blue whales. And that's just on the living side of things. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, the invisible yeah. world, I suspect, is just as complex, just as rich, and just as weird. Yeah. 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 And, and I think that, you know, to, you know, the people don't like the, what they co- often call the lock rhythms of certain episodes of theological history where it got very technical. But they were trying to deal conceptually with kinds of realities and give names to them that we're not used to pondering. I mean, we laugh at, can, you know, how many angels dance on the pin, you know. The, the, but, the, but the mindset is very different when it's trying to engage aspects of reality that that are that we have a strong sense there are there are angels right how do we conceive of them how do we think of them okay we have their bad ways of thinking of them like that but there are also other ways we have to think about them and again we don't have 
with this with this stuff it can it can we don't have so much information so we don't want to tread into territory we're not meant to tread into but nevertheless we do have some information and we do have some what some you know just like any theological point we have something to work with um to at least let us know that they there is something going on here and there's a nature here that we can at least think about and make some intelligible sense of in name in in at least some kind of maybe inadequate way but yeah. but even a, a kind of real way, you know, uh, Glenn. This may be an interesting point. How did the the the, the kind of the books of kind of uh, bestiaries basically in the medieval were, because that had to do a lot with naming both what was here, but also different levels of yeah. kind of relationship that that uh, different things served in a, a much richer. Cosmos. Yeah, I'm, I'm not really up on the literature on bestiaries, but they definitely did their best to try to figure out how to categorize. The, the medieval mind, this is something C.S. Lewis points out, the medieval mind was really big on categorizing things. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so they yeah. were definitely trying to develop an understanding of, well, we would call taxonomy, how do you categorize all of these animals, many of which they'd never seen and had only the the weakest yeah. conception of what they were. But this also parallels what you see in Pseudo-Dionysius, where there's this categorization of the angelic realm. Yeah. 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 Would you like to establish a privatized banking system that will help you separate from the mainstream banks and get more control over your money? Join a growing community of families, business owners, pastors and churches, yes, even churches, that are learning to establish and manage a privatized banking system and enjoy the safety of guaranteed tax-free growth perpetuated by the amazing power of uninterrupted compound interest. Don't wait for the next crash. Contact Private Family Banking. They are here to help fuel the future of the family and the church with multi-generational wealth building. See our contact information in the show notes below or just email us at banking at privatefamilybanking.com. Well, why don't we step on to another question or step to another question? So uh, it's back to me. Um, at least I think it's back to me. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Uh, Patrick. Patrick asks a question that I think we've touched on a little bit already, but uh, uh, he's narrow, narrowed it in, narrowed, narrows his question in on a particular uh, thing. He says, uh, first, what are your thoughts on wise ways to pursue institutional succession? So, uh, specifically in churches or other Christian institutions. It seems like most Christian institutions have a three to four generation maximum shelf life, even if they uh, have solid, well-defined convictions uh, from their founding. Uh, this sort of came up in this week's episode on the Christian Stockholm Syndrome, and I've seen it its failure firsthand in a church. So uh, that's, a, a I think, uh, something we all kind of think about. Uh, in fact, there's been kind of a, an interesting, I don't know if the term is controversy or at least discussion surrounding the fact that women are uh, kind of astonished at the amount of time men spend thinking about the fall of the Roman Empire. <laughs> like, you, you, you think about it every day? And, and, and honestly, I, I can say I do. I, I think about the fall of the Roman Empire every day. Um, is it just because I think, you know, the empire was such a great thing? Well, in some respects, it was really a remarkable thing. In other ways, obviously, it had a lot, you know, to uh, be desired. It left a lot to be desired. Uh, we find ourselves in a very similar uh, set of circumstances 
in our world today. The parallels are, um, are uncanny, apart from the obvious differences with regard to slavery or with regard to technology. The, uh, in many respects, the you know just the the kind of the cultural slurry, the 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 multiculturalism, the sort of the the uh, kind of heresy generating atmosphere in which we live that existed at that time. All that stuff is, is, is very similar. Um, so, uh, I guess I would, what I would say is, is we can step back and think about maybe this at two levels. At one level, uh, we have an institution that for all of its, uh, you know, sort of failures, uh, is still with us. And that is the Christian church. Now, there have been expressions of it that have uh, crashed and burned, um, and there have been new expressions of it, or at least appear to be new, that seem to be going great guns in different parts of the world, thinking of Pentecostalism in particular. Mm -hmm. Um, So at one level, you know, we have an institution that has uh, sustained, has been sustained, and depending on how we think about it, uh, I'm of the I'm of the opinion that there is an Old Testament church, so you know there is a a, a connection between the Old Testament church and the New Testament church, saved by the same Savior in in, you know, in the same way through faith. So we're talking about something with significant history, and God has preserved it in spite of all of the uh, you know sort of near misses you can look at throughout history and say I can't believe that we got through that episode <laughs> and, and here we are. Uh, and there are more of us than there have ever been. Uh, we're in more places in the world than we've ever been uh, as the church. And so I think there's a lot to, to say about that. But on the other hand, in terms of just as it's instantiated in different places, we, we all can see uh, things, how, how they've gone bad. You know, think of Harvard for, for goodness sake. I mean, there was an institution that uh, you know, would have been just considered, you know, on par with, say, New St. Andrews College back when it was getting started. You know, for goodness sake, its library uh, owed its existence to one guy named John Harvard, <laughs> who donated his live personal library to, to make that uh, library happen or bring it into existence for Harvard. So, you know, with those things in mind, um, you know, that is something that can t- discourage us. I can think of denominations that I've been mm-hmm. connected to, part of, that I I think have um, entered into their sort of their terminal uh, phase. They're going to die unless something happens. So uh, any thoughts on any of this stuff? Um, I mean, I think, you're, I think you're right. I mean, you could even look at it in like, Christian family succession. I mean, as someone like a figure, kind of an early modern American theologian like Jonathan Edwards, where you had his own, he was also a part of congregations themselves that on the one hand were very vibrant and godly, and you started to see these compromises and covenants develop and, and little shifts here and there. But nevertheless, he and his own family had generations that went on to become great political leaders and contributors to a whole host of things, but also later on, you know, get caught up in, in the, you know, the downfall of in many places like the rest in society and culture. And I think, I mean, with the church, I think you're exactly right. I mean, providence and, and trusting in, you know, um, you know, the claim of Christ that the gates of hell will not 
you know, prevail against the church. That gives us hope. But I think using what wisdom and tools we have to have a part in picking godly follow-ups and, and encouraging the church to really invest strongly in the kind of people that are committed to the faith and living it out and, and you know, building the kinds of things we talk about. I mean, maybe some of that's just the best we can, we can do on our side, coupled with the promise that, that Christ is going to fulfill it and will spring, you know, will, the rocks will cry out if no one else does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yep. To that, I would add that we aren't responsible for what happens in two generations. We're responsible with what we do now. So we need to do our best, pray, Prayer is critical, but we need to do our best in terms of seeking a way to develop institutions that are godly, that will preserve it for at least the next generation. And then it's the next generation's job to preserve it for the generation after that. We can only do what we can do. God has put us in a particular time and place to work in this time and place, not to work 50 years in the future. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I think those are great observations. Another thing I would just keep in mind is that there are institutions that are being founded right now that are obscure, that people don't know about, that are weak, that hardly have any money, that in you know, 50 to 100 years are going to be monstrous in terms of their yeah. size and their influence. Yeah. <laughs> so we can be depressed as we look around and see things that we thought were uh, sound and uh, going to last forever, falling apart. Um, there's something about God's um, sort of way of going about things where he's, he's like a farmer. You know, there's a season for this one, there's a season for that. And, and so even though we see things crumbling around us, there are other things that are developing that, uh, uh, you know, it will, we're all going to benefit from. Yeah. Yeah. Um... The phrase "Do not despise the day of small beginnings" comes to mind here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, great. Uh, the the other thing I think we've got to also be concerned about, just as a caution, is we have to make sure that what we are doing as we build our institutions is working to build the kingdom and not to build our own empire. Mm -hmm. That it seems to me is the trap, particularly as institutions get larger, that they begin to well, lose their first love and they begin to be more concerned about promoting themselves and their reach and all of that than about promoting the kingdom. That's the caution we need to throw in. Right, mm. right. Anyway, ready for another question? If you got one there, Glenn, that kind of leaps out at you? Um, yeah, let me, let me pull up the questions once again. Um, I'm actually going to go back to Patrick. Um, okay. Part two of Patrick's question any good book recommendations on medieval guilds or guilds revival today? Um, I really don't have any books about uh, in mind about guild revivals today because I don't think anything we've got today really resembles the medieval guilds, which are the things I'm more interested in. Um, the problem that we have with books on medieval guilds is that particularly recently, the tendency has been to study either specific guilds or just the economic dimensions of the guilds. Um, there's a book, for example, that I, I uh, ran into that actually is researching something I thought would have been kind of cool to do when I was a grad student, and that's 
uh, archer and crossbow guilds in Flanders. We've got complete records of these things. But <laughs> that book isn't going to help you in a more general way. It's also really expensive. It's not going to help you in a more general way in studying guilds. Um, some of the older works on medieval economic history will help you more here. Jacques Le Goff has one on uh, work and life in medieval Europe or something like that. Um, the, the thing about the guilds were, you know, we think about them in terms of their economic functions. Um, but the guilds were a lot more than that. They performed social functions. They performed political functions. There were religious dimensions of it and so on. And so to get a complete picture of the guild, you have to see all of those things. And unfortunately, um, I wasn't able to identify recent books that really seem to do that well. You probably have to go, like I said, to older books on medieval social and economic history, particularly urban history, to find that. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, Tom, do you, do you have a question you want us to take a look at? Uh, I, I have I have a fun one here. <laughs> this is from Alex. Yeah. Um, as someone who has spent the majority of my life yeah. focused on analytic philosophy and mathematical logic, I have found a, I have never found a coherent definition of rational. Can you discuss your take on the concept and its relationship to logo logos? Um. Well, I mean, <laughs> it's interesting the way he puts it. I've never found the coherent definition. Because uh, <laughs> he's sort of given away something about the rational as he understands it, right? To be coherent. Right. Um, and, and so rational, uh, rational is one of the ingredients would be coherence, right? Um, I, I mean, I, I, I'll come at it more of a classical way of putting it. I mean, I, th I think ultimately intelligibility re reduces to certain basic principles, without which no intelligible thought can be had. Um, these are first principles of reasoning. We usually talk about them as the law of non-contradiction, the law of, you know, excluded middle, um, and the like. And, and so these things, you know, my argument would be these things bump up against the fact, ultimately, that being, being is intelligible and anchored in being are these first principles from which uh, we reason. And so that they sort of set the foundation of intelligibility and then drawing um, interconnected, intelligible, intelligibly connected uh, inferences from them is how we begin reasoning from our encounter with the world and things and making sense of their intelligibility. This would be grounded in the Logos um, as, you know, the eternal word. And, and um, you know, there's a great book out right now. I can actually give you the title of it that addresses how wide-ranging the actual biblical word for Logos is. We tend to only interpret it as, as a, analogous or, or in continuity with Ruach of the, um, or yeah, yeah, the Hebrew. language of, of speech and right. actually uh, in the uh, Old Testament. But, but it's much richer than that. And let me get the title really quick because, I, I, you know, again, you may not agree with everything in the book, but I think it would be a good unpacking of what uh, Christians mean by logos and intelligibility. It's called Christ the Logos. Hold on just a second. I lost the title there. Christ the Logos of Creation by John Betts. I think he's at Notre Dame. That name and, is familiar. 
Yeah, and uh, yeah, you'd know uh, you'd know him because uh, he's he's done a lot of Mars Hill interviews with Ken Meyer, yeah, so okay. you'd know his stuff from that. He he wrote on Haman, a famous work. Oh right, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. and he yeah. he's taken the Polish uh, theologian philosopher Bzwara uh, Eric Bzwara's work and uh, on analogy, and he translated that. So he's kind of one of the figures. But but really, what you're talking about in, in Christ is sort of the the kind of the core of of the intelligibility that God is. And creatures, as a creation of that creator, bear something of that stamp, and part of our rational capacities is simply exercising um, what we are and how that holds together. And it's fascinating how much and how well it has worked. (laughs) It also shows how limited it is in the sense that we aren't the Logos itself, but we are only a kind of finite exemplification of it and can only enact it in finite ways and need others to cause us to hold it in check through kind of rational critique. Um, I don't know if that gives a good answer to it, but I I, kind of work with a very basic way of putting it. Yeah, it's a working, it's a, you know, it's, it's kind of, the proof is in actually, you know, using, (laughs) using it, you know, you're at, you know, rationality. So, uh, this, I'm reminded I'm, 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 I've, I'm revisiting uh, Joseph Pieper's Leisure, the Basis of Culture, and his, you know he's working with that classic distinction between discursive reason and contemplation. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, discursive reason is work. You know, mm-hmm. it's something, it's applying yourself in such a way as you, you know, to follow out, you know, sort of the, a, a, you know, in a, a kind of like a chain, uh, the syllogistic uh, sort of approach to to this leads to that leads to this and so forth where and he contrasts that with contemplation which is passive which is receptive so which is not work it's mm-hmm. it's just sort of taking it in but when you're taking it in it's not as though that's uh kind of a vacation from from the, the logos that's actually receiving yeah yeah <laughs> you're, exactly. you're just receiving it yeah. um now and discursive discursive reasoning is you know working within the framework of the logos kind of following you know following uh, a chain of reasoning out to different conclusions. So there are different approaches to to Mm -hmm. that, but I I like the way you you addressed it there, Tom. Uh, Any thoughts about that, Glenn? Yeah, I... I think that that uh, Tom's approach again. I, I'm going to echo it. I think it just genuinely makes a lot of sense. I think it it um, you know the idea of first principles and so on. Um, and again, reason connected to logos that that's critical. It is worth noting one thing though that that people like Augustine talked about, and that's that um, in John one it doesn't only talk about the Logos. It talks about Jesus being the light that enlightens every man. That's right, yeah. And what that points to, according to Augustine, is that all human knowledge, every every bit of knowledge we have, is mediated through Christ. It's mediated through the Logos. And this is an element of common grace. This is how the pagans can understand truth, that how they can reason well, how they can reach good conclusions. Um, It's because... Not not because they're pagans. It's actually because of Christ. It's because of yeah. the logos that alight, that enlightens every man. Yeah, yeah. That I think that that is very key. And, and kind of to use a, a, a different kind. I think Augustine would agree with this kind of language. Is that that illumination that Christ is right? The turning on the light is the showing the kind of the contours of intelligibility within the form of things. And that the fact that things are formed, that form is actually what is kind of the stamp of intelligibility, and that illumination is what shines light on it because it is who God is 
and God, therefore, is the source of it, the purpose of it, the sustainer of it, and therefore the core intelligibility of it. So you need it mediated through Christ in order to, to have any sense of its real intelligibility and truth at all. So we're getting to that point where we should start wrapping things up, but I, I, I can't help but get to the third part of Patrick's question because uh, it's now it, this is obviously not something we're going to be able to to uh, address in a satisfactory way but um, there is something about the southern tradition um, and he gets at that right here he says third I've recently been reading Richard M Weaver's uh, ideas of consequences uh, his book the Southern tradition at bay. He posits that the antebellum South was the last ancient or medieval society, and with the defeat of the Confederacy, the final vestigial uh, remnant uh, of the Via Antiqua was removed before modernity's bid for the world. Now, obviously, um, when we talk about the American South, the thing that immediately comes to mind is slavery, mm-hmm. but let's just imagine a South without slavery, it was a different sort of place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there's so, there's something to what he's saying here. There is something about the, the sort of the Gothic character of the South, mm-hmm. the haunted character of the South. Yeah. I mean, it's where lots of great stories are told and, and just yeah. um, great music is made. Uh, you know, the North just cannot hold a candle to a number of things, Southern food, Southern music, Southern storytelling. Southern accent. Southern accent. <laughs> I have <laughs> one. <so. laughs> but there are a lot of great things about the South. I mean, you know, just something that, you know, take, take for example, something that might just seem as absurd as, oh, brother, where art thou? Yeah. Now, what you have in, oh, brother, where art thou is the Odyssey in the South. Yeah. Now, could you do <laughs> that in the North? Is there anything about Northern culture, New England culture? Maybe uh, in, uh, you know, uh, Puritan New England, yeah, you know, but then we're getting back to something somewhat similar to what Weaver's yeah. talking about. Yeah. But it that's long dead by the time yeah. the Civil War. Well, comes it's about. in the, the 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 place the you know that formed the imagination of Flannery O'Connor and Tom Wolfe. Um, just cool. yeah, it, it it for for all the dark side, like you said, of of slavery and how it kind of you know, puts a, a shadow on everything else. There, there are a lot of elements that even growing up there at the time I did was still some remnants of it. Yeah. Where, I, where, I guess maybe the only thing about the North that could hold a candle to it would be Moby Dick. And then you're talking about something out in the sea, right? Yeah. And, <laughs> and again, you got that creepy New England sort yeah. of H.P. Uh, Lovecraft dynamic, yeah. you know. Yeah, I, I, would, I would just like to um, remind you of Mark Twain's quote about Washington, D.C. <laughs> he said, it's a city that combines a northern charm with southern efficiency. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, I, I, I think that, that there is a sense in which, um, in, in which he's right that there is a kind of romanticism in the South uh, that comes out during the, um, you know, it, well, that that effectively gets plowed over uh, because of the Civil War. And that sort of romantic, um, I, I would tie it more to romanticism than to true medievalism or, or true medieval, you know, tradition or something like that. But I think that I think that it's there and I think that there is a connection. 
uh, that you know that he is is certainly onto something. It's much more of an honor culture, right? Yeah. Right. Um, things like that. That um, yeah, I, I think that there's something there. Yeah. So I, I'm looking over here at the account of my uh, third great grandfather, the Captain Nathan Bolin, and his uh, gunfight with the corrupt Sheriff Morris Wright, uh, which occurred in Arkansas. <laughs> and that whole story is worth an episode of the podcast, but let's not go there right now. But anyway, uh, uh, we should wrap things up. By the way, we have some new merch that we are developing, and Glenn has a mug. <laughs> Can you describe the mug there, Glenn? <laughs> well, I, I just simply need to note that there was a conference in Tacoma, and this is what greeted me. <laughs> you are my face of Glenn Sunshine. You are my sunshine. That's great. <laughs> so That's very so good. that we're, we're we're working on a licensing agreement. <laughs> Can you get that on a, pu a pint glass too? That, <laughs> that, that could be, be interesting. Be great. Yeah, that yeah. would be a good good pint glass. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we that's that's uh, uh, in the future for merch for us. We've got some other things we're working on, uh, and uh, we want to thank uh, the folks who have uh, recently joined our Patreon page. We've had about a half dozen new. Uh, people join and commit to supporting the show and so thank you very much for that if you'd like to join that happy number and maybe even contribute some questions that we could take up some other show down the road uh, please check out our patreon page anyway that's enough for now uh, thanks a lot and bye 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 bye, bye. The Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy another one of our podcasts, Got a Minute, featuring Larson Hicks and Rich Lusk. Theology, philosophy, economics, politics, and more for normal people.